everybody, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, one of your hosts, and yet another beautiful Friday afternoon. I think uh, I would like to believe that it's the podcast that makes this special in this way. I don't think that's the case, but I, I'll believe it, and we'll just go with that. Well, Something- Andy, as we talked about in the beginning, it's a beautiful Friday because it's a very good Friday since it's Good Friday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. It is a good Friday. It it's is Good fun. Friday. I uh, When I turned 16 that year, um, my birthday fell on, on Good Friday, I think. Uh, my birthday was this past Sunday. And I remember so excited to go get my driver's license. My mom took me out of school early. We drove down to the DPS office at 2 o'clock. And they had closed at noon because it was Good Friday. And I had to wait like a full week to get my license. And I was just crushed. Like, this is why people don't like the government, um, <laughs> just because it's inconvenient for me as a person. So, well, joining me today, of course, is Bailey Perkins. Hello, Bailey. Hello, Andy. Hey, listeners. Thanks for being here on this Good Friday and for reminding us about it. Um, we have two special guests that are joining us today. Um, here with us already is Alicia Priest from OEA. Hello, Alicia. Thanks for being here. We're going to talk about education funding and the debacle of the last week with that goodness. Uh, And then joining us a little bit later in the show is Oklahoma County Commissioner Carrie Blumert to talk about another debacle, although it feels almost insensitive to say debacle about that because it does involve human life. Um, But we've had her on the show previously to talk about the conditions uh, at the Oklahoma County Jail and the shenanigans that it goes on with the Board of County Commissioners and the Jail Trust. And it's only getting worse. Things are getting worse, right? So uh, we'll visit with her more about that later in the show. Uh, But first, Bailey, let's uh, kind of recap this week for a little bit. It it feels like it's April, right? Like every year in April, as the legislative session like has passed the halfway mark, things invariably get more intense, I think. Do you feel like that's the case? Always, especially (laughs) as we get closer into appropriations conversation and what the budget looks like, things just get more and more tense at at the Capitol. Yeah. And so this week, gosh, I felt like there was a number of press conferences. There was some good news this week too, right? COVID vaccines are available to everybody. There's no phases. It's just, you know, stick them if you got them. Like everyone gets signed up. I got a text today, three different texts from people saying that the Oklahoma Indian Clinic was giving out vaccines at Skyline Ministries. And there was a couple other groups that were doing it. Is one at Tower Theater? Yeah. I mean, they're really everywhere. And Oklahoma's doing all right as far as it goes to vaccines. And I will say credit to Governor Stitt for really pushing people to get vaccinated and really promoting that starting, you know, this past Monday, anybody who wants one can get one. And he went and got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine himself, which was something that I wasn't expecting. And so um, on a previous episode, we certainly gave kudos and credit to our tribal nations because they're the reason that we've been able to expedite the timeline on people being able to get vaccines. Um, I recently um, visited somewhere and the people were like, wait, how, how did you get a vaccine already? And 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 so other places are not where Oklahoma is in terms of any and everybody who wants to get a vaccine has the ability to get one. So um, credit to 
um, all of our public health officials to our tribal nations um, for their generosity in ensuring that anybody who needs to get one can get one. And then also um, the support of the um, state administration for encouraging people to get vaccinated. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, Oklahoma truly is a top 10 state when it comes to vaccines, which is good news. And I, I will say, though, this, um, well, it's good bragging rights. This is not a competition. Um, we want every American, we want everybody on earth to get a vaccine. I saw the other day there's been something like 600 million doses um, given out worldwide, which is a lot, right? But there's like 8 billion people on earth. So we got a long way to go. Uh, and so uh, that's a, a great start. And then we've just got to keep keep it up. Um, but yeah, it was exciting to see the governor get his shot on even on the news. It felt like the media was excited about it. And I think they made a really good PR move. Um, or as soon as they gave his um, uh, Commissioner Fry said, hey, anybody else here need a shot? We've got some more. And I was like, that's brilliant, because there's a good chance that there was someone in the room that hadn't gotten one yet. And if you've got them open, like, let's give them out. This is not just a publicity stunt. This is now a vaccination site. Uh, and so that was, I thought, a good move. So, well, and uh, we haven't felt that the governor has led by example in a lot of ways during this pandemic over the past year. And so this was a true display of leadership to say, everyone can get one. I'm getting one with you because he could have got it a long time ago because lawmakers had the ability to get it a month or two ago, but he waited until it was opened up for everybody else. He got the shot. And then, like you said, Andy, the optics of anybody in this room who wants to get one can get one today will hopefully inspire more people who have had fear about getting the vaccine to, to go ahead and, and do it. I will also say between the press conference and the moment that he got the vaccine, he did a bit of a wardrobe change, right? He had a suit on, he went to go put on his t-shirt and that may seem silly, but as someone who like worked in healthcare and wore a suit most of the time, every year I'd go get my flu shot and I felt like I had to disrobe in front of a room full of people. <laughs> got to undress was, all yeah. the layers. Right. And I was like, <laughs> you got to take the jacket off. You got to take the, the shirt, unbutton the shirt. And that's, yeah. that's a lot. And then, and then what do you do? You can't like, you're not going to unbutton your pants to tuck your shirt back in. So you just look like you're all disheveled walking back to your office. And so I made a point years ago to, try to like wear a t-shirt and some kind of like fleece jacket on flu shot day so I could easily get my arm out. Uh, so I understand him putting on the t-shirt for the, uh, for the shot. Also, he looked a little nervous about the needle. Maybe he's not a needle fan. I don't know. I, I don't believe that he is. I know I am not a needle fan. I hate getting shots. I, I can't look at the needle at all. And I always have to preface it with the nurse or the, the, the tech who's going to give it to say heads up. I'm fear of needles. So hopefully this won't hurt. <laughs> so, but the, the fact that he braved through it was definitely commendable. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kudos, Governor Stitt. Uh, now in the next breath, we, we will talk about the health department and how the, not everything has gone well with during the COVID pandemic. So news came out, was it yesterday morning, I guess, uh, Thursday morning, that the audit that was, I guess, released on Tuesday from the the state auditor of is a routine audit of the health department, but found that they had purchased and paid for $20.4 million worth of personal protective equipment that they have no record of receiving. Right. So, so someone paid the bill and whoever was supposed to receive that either didn't get it, dropped the ball or it's sitting somewhere and we haven't counted it yet. 
Well, Andy, months ago, we've had conversations about the unique, I'll frame it as, um, people and vendors that the governor chose to use for different elements of the pandemic. Because you saw businesses that were jumping at the opportunity that had never been in the space of creating certain PPE or whatever, now creating these entities that can now supply the government with whatever equipment. And so that's very fascinating that <laughs> random company that suddenly went from, you know, building car parts to now building PPE. <laughs> now, and, and I'm just throwing that as an example. Now, you know, is getting these contracts for development. And now later on, we're seeing that like those products may have never arrived. Yeah. So. Well, there was some company that, that has already been fined, right? Like, or charged by the attorney general because they, they did some kind of PPE acquisition illegally or something didn't do it or overcharged. I forget the details, but um, yeah, and that was the thing that was not in the stories I saw about this audit is that it didn't say to whom that $20 million was paid, like specifically who was the vendor. So we don't know if it was, you know, um, Cardinal Health, like a big vendor that supplies medical stuff, or if it's like someone's brother, right? Or something. Well, and I will add that, like, there's a reason that government entities require vendors to typically go through these extensive processes. And we typically rely on the same folks to produce different services is to ensure that fraud isn't happening and that we know reliability of a product. And so um, I would not be surprised if it comes out that one of those vendors is a vendor that we have never used for producing PPE to be a provider on that, right? Um, so, cause I, I know people criticize government and the bureaucracy of things, but this is an example of one reason why there's so many um, regulations and red tape about who we can use for what is to ensure that taxpayer dollars are being used in the ways that we're expecting them to be used. Anybody who's ever gotten burned by a purchase on Amazon or eBay knows you got to vet your vendors, right? Like you, <laughs> you've got to make sure you get the right thing. Yes. Also, the health department's response to this was like, well, we were doing stuff we'd never done before and mistakes were made. And I was like, listen, a mistake is a bad haircut. Like a $20 million of taxpayer money that has been spent with nothing, like in return, is not just a mistake. Like that is a, it is potentially criminal, right? <laughs> or at least neglectful. And I will, I think, result in a more thorough investigation by the attorney general uh, and by the auditor. And I also, I seem to remember a few years ago where the State Department of Health misplaced about $20 million, right? They found it under but the They found it, but then they, it was, it was a weird time. I remember that too. It also dealt with, uh, federal money that they had received that they put in one account and they hit it over here. And I suspect that part of this was some care. I don't know if this was back at the time that we'd received some federal cares dollars or we were just counting on that money coming. Um, but their response seemed almost to kind of brush this under the rug of like, well, you know, it was a wild time last year. We were doing the best we could, uh, which is not the case. They said they've only 
you know, it was a, a deal with a wire transfer and they're not used to doing those, but, but you are used to doing accounting, right? And there was another issue of $18 million worth of charges that had not been entered into the accounting system correctly, like by the end of the fiscal year, which throws off the books for the next year. And given the history of what has happened at the health department with their accounting systems and, and some missteps, it does uh, raise a large eyebrow, I think, on them and, and what's happening. I well, don't know. And even beyond the idea of like just taxpayer dollar accountability, the other reason why like it's so important that we know where our dollars are going and accounting for is because we may have to pay that back to the federal government. And we don't want to be in the position of any mismanagement. And now we're having to use state dollars <laughs> that we could place, you know, other areas to now have to pay back the federal government because we don't know where the dollars went for PPE or we don't know, we didn't properly account for whatever, right? So I think it's just so critical that, um, we're, we're keeping up with, I mean, of course, for transparency's sake, but also because that's going to hurt our pockets and our ability to pay for services that we need. That's exactly right. Well, speaking of funding and money, let's talk about education funding, because uh, it's been quite a week for that as well. Uh, so maybe it's probably helpful to listeners to start uh, talking about how public education or how education in Oklahoma has been funded historically. Alicia, can you kind of really simple, like break down how public schools are funded, how charter schools have been funded and, and what the difference between those two entities is? Sure. The, um, it, we have a state funding formula. And, um, and so we do a student count every year and um, let the state Department of Education know how many students we have. Uh, you can count your current year. Previously, you could count your current year or look back to the last two years and you could count whichever was highest. And this gives districts time to plan for uh, changes like drops of enrollment, things like that. Um, and you have local collections, ad valorem, property taxes, sales tax, some comes into it. There are some other uh, taxes that like rural electric, things like that. But for uh, forever, how, however much you get locally, your state goes down so that it's an equalizing uh, formula. And then a district on its own can um, have a vote for bonds bonds for building and maintenance, for buses, uh, you know, technology, textbooks, things like that, that are specifically spelled out in the bond election. And, um, and that goes to a vote of the people, the taxpayers in that, uh, in that district. And so um, those usually go into uh, building funds so that you can maintain your buildings. I imagine having you know, like I, I'm from Yukon uh, School District. Um, we have 12 uh, buildings. You have to have the heating and air. You've got to have all the plumbing. I mean, anytime that there is a bad weather, there's, you know, damp, just whatever. Playground equipment, you would not believe how 
expensive playground equipment is. So all of these things um, can go into a bond issue and the people vote on it. And, um, and that money has to legally has to be spent on those issues. And not every community, right, has the ability to even raise a bond. Like it, it has to go up for the vote of the people and the people have to have the revenue to be able to even do a bond issue, right? Right. And yeah. so that that money is levied on the taxpayers, those that bonded indebtedness is levied on the taxpayers. And so, um, you know, some some just sometimes bonds pass, sometimes they fail. I mean, most of the time our local uh, citizens are very supportive of their public schools. So the, the question here ends up being between public and charter schools, and we'll get into the, the settlement here. But at, can you explain what a charter school is and how it is different from a traditional public school that most people are aware of? Well, char- charter schools um, were created for greater flexibility. Um, they have to be they they have to have someone um, sponsor them, and uh, they have a charter with that sponsoring entity. And there are specific rules for who can sponsor and and all of that stuff. And, um, and they maintain their own um, advisory board, who is their decision-making body. So is that different than the State Board of Education? That is different than the State Board of Education or a locally elected Board of Education. Like uh, Jennifer Monies, who sits on the State Board of Education, is also on the John Rex Charter School Board uh, school board. So she's a decision maker for a charter school. And, um, and she votes on things that affect charters uh, at the state school board. Right, right. So how are charters funded through public dollars? Charters are funded through public dollars. They get their funding um, from the state funding formula per pupil. They do not have the ability to um, levy taxes because, uh, well, that's, that's in the law. Right. Um, and, there's a lot that uh, that goes into all of that. Well, and that's, you know, and we have charter schools aren't systems, too, I will add. Right. It's they're in often individual schools versus. How districts, correct? That's correct. They they are individual districts. They're considered public schools. Um, they have their own governing body but they have to have a sponsoring entity um, in order to become. And, and the charter school, the, charter, the Oklahoma Charter School Act uh, lists out how, how that is specifically done and what a chart for a, a sponsoring entity to approve a charter, um, they have to go through this list and check off that they can do all of these things um, before, uh, before a, an, a sponsoring entity can um, can approve them. Yeah. So they are in the world, but not of the world <laughs> or vice versa. I don't know. Yes, uh, all of that. So that, uh, the thing you mentioned a minute ago that they have historically, they are not able to levy taxes because they are individual schools, not part of a larger district. And that, uh, therein lies the point of contention. So I guess I'll, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like there was a lawsuit several years ago. It's kind of been pending for a while where charter schools were saying, hey, we should be allowed, like we get public dollars, we should be allowed to 
benefit from bonds that have been passed uh, and be able to to get money that way. And I don't guess there was actually a judge hasn't ruled, but there was a settlement decided on or voted on with a, a four to three vote, right? By the right. of education where four people said yes and three people said no. Among the no's notably is state superintendent Joy Hoffmeister. Um, and in her statement, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but she said, uh, and during the meeting, hey, listen, I don't think this is right. And I also don't think this is constitutional. Uh, and the council for the state board of education had given her advice that this was not the way to go. Uh, however, the board voted four to three. What does that vote and this settlement, what does that change about funding? So it, it changes the fact that um, if this is signed and goes into effect, uh, it, it allows for um, charters to have part of that bonding uh, capacity. So if you, um, so if, if I'm just, I just use Yukon because that's where I'm from. Uh, so for ease, that's what I'm going to keep saying. Um, so a charter school, uh, students that decide to go to a charter school that aren't in Yukon, they will be able to take a percentage of that money that was voted on by the citizens of that public school uh, in that area, in that district, and take that and it would go with them to a charter school that um, there is not the same type of oversight, there's not the same requirements uh, for accountability, they don't have to hire certified teachers necessarily, they don't have to, um, they don't have to pay the state minimum salary schedule, Alicia, they don't even have to maintain students, correct? So like if something happens and a student violates their rules or ideas, they could be easily booted out of. Right, right, right. And, and they don't have to um, they don't have to take all students. They, they can cherry pick. And so um, so so all of these things are are problematic. And it's problematic for me as a taxpayer who voted on funding to go to my local public school to have my taxpayer dollars diverted to go to a charter school that I that my board and my district didn't even agree upon uh, and doesn't have to follow our, our guidelines and requirements. Goodness. So this is, I, I think it, it goes without saying, like this is a earth-shaking change and how things have been done in Oklahoma. Um, I, I saw this week, I think, so this meeting was uh, earlier, was it last week? or earlier? a week ago today, yeah. Okay. Oof, man, yeah, time flies. Um, oh, that's right. We finished the uh, podcast last week and I looked on Twitter and was like, oh man, enormous news has happened right as we wrapped up. Uh, so since then, I believe Oklahoma City Public Schools has filed suit about this. I would imagine there'll be other districts that join on uh, with that. What um, what are the next steps as it comes to this settlement? Do, do you know? Do we have any idea what happens next? So th it will play out in court. Um, Oklahoma City Public has requested an immediate uh, like injunction so that that money won't be taken away from them. Um, it it, uh, it could be up to about five hundred dollars a student moving away from districts to those charter schools. And Oklahoma City Public Schools has probably 
it's not only just the biggest district, but it probably has the most charter schools within that district in comparison to others, correct? Yes, yes. There are several charters in, in both Oklahoma City Public and uh, Tulsa. Both uh, are, are good about chartering. When the, when the requesting school that's trying to charter is following the law and the guidelines when they're trying to upstart. So, um, so it, it, so there will be lawsuits, of course, and you have to have standing in order to do that, which means it's really it's school districts that are going to be harmed with this. Um, and, uh, and there could be legislative action as well, because uh, we believe that the, look, I'm a teacher, I'm a Spanish teacher, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I did get a good night's sleep in my own home last night, but that doesn't qualify me to speak uh, legally. But from, from what I understand, uh, this resolution and the settlement that the State Board of Education passed um, usurps the authority of the state lawmakers in, uh, in what they did because it redirects um, what the law says is acceptable. Um, and, and that is that charters can't, can't levy taxes and can't, you know, they can't move that money around. Yeah. So that's, that's what stroke or struck me about it is that like the, the school funding formula is incredibly complicated. And it's not only complicated, but it's underfunded. It's underfunded is reality. It's really not that complicated. <laughs> okay. See, someone told me that you could like get a PhD in the school funding formula because it was so complicated. I think it was Scott Mitchell that said that though. So I was immediately suspect. Uh, but it's, I, I mean, it's I'm the, a policy junkie, so right. I'm not the best person to ask when. Well, we should have you back on to talk about it because I've always been interested to learn exactly how it goes. Because there's like units of measurement in there that are unique to the formula, right? Right, because it costs more money to educate certain categories of students because you need more supports. Right. And so they have a higher, you know, uh, weight than um, a, a regular student who, you know, is in fifth grade. Right. Is, is not a higher, it's a one type right. of way. Right. And right. it's an equalized system to ensure yes. that this school that has a really high property tax base isn't receiving, you know, significant amount funding more beyond this school that's in a poorer area where the resources are more scarce. And so there are even federal funds that come in that help with that equalization to ensure that students that may have uh, disabilities or students that may have the, the free and reduced lunch, you know, like the, those different types of um, factors that impact learning are also accounted for within the formula. Right, so that we can give all the supports that we need, and and that costs money to make sure that our students have those supports. 100%, yeah, because the Constitution says that we're going to give students an, an equal education, and that's what the state is supposed to provide through the dollars. And so, thank you, Alicia, for for raising that. Um, the design of the formula is to ensure that all students, wherever you live in the state can have the resources you need to have an equal education. Right, and, that, and, that, and that's really why that um, when you have high property taxes, you're, you're reaping in those sales taxes at a higher level than what the state gives you uh, comes down and because your local 
tax chargeables are what they're called uh, in the formula are equaling out what everyone is getting per pupil. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, is there, Alicia, is there anything that our listeners can do or should pay attention to over the next few weeks um, if they are interested in learning more or being involved in this somehow? Well, I think um, staying involved and staying informed is key. You know, uh, there are all kinds of votes going on on April 6th and early voting going on now. There is that special Senate district race, uh, Senate District 22. Um, there are school board races. School board races are key uh, for everyone because that that's really where local those local decisions are made. So, um, and there are some bonds and, and municipality races. So all of those are key, but, um, but you should also feel free to reach out to your state board of education member that represents your area. And, um, and they should represent their constituents in that area. Yeah, they're appointed by the governor, but, um, but, but A, they should know what they're doing. Um, when, when your legal person is telling you that what you're doing is illegal and unconstitutional, you should listen to that. Right. I, I learned a long time ago to, to not argue with my attorney about anything. Um, if I'm not, right. I don't know more than they do, and I rarely do. So, um, well, thank you. With my hairdresser. Right. Fair enough. Do you want to do something different? I'm like, you're the trained professional. This is not a Spanish class, so I will not tell you what to do. Well, and before we go, Andy, with with this portion of the conversation, I I would love Alicia to talk about we've reached the anniversary time of the walkout from last year. So can you talk about like going from that energy and that time last year to where we are now and and, and what is the feeling and, and sentiment among educators at this time? Well, um, you know, the, this year has been typically, atypically difficult for everyone. Um, you know, the, there, are, there are key words in, in education, we call it synchronous and asynchronous, whether you're in, in the classroom face-to-face -face or you're online, and many teachers are doing both at the same time and um, having to learn different platforms. And it's just been an exhausting year for everyone. Um, trying to stay safe ourselves, trying to keep our students safe, making sure that everyone's um, learning is moving forward, all at the same time, um, having to monitor what's going on over at the legislature because there are um, tax reform bills going in that, that uh, corporate tax and uh, income tax and the um, automobile tax, um, they originated in different sides of, of the legislature, but um, they claw back more money than was raised in the walkout, you know, as a result of the walkout to fund public education. So we're talking about um, eliminating over $600 million of funding to the state revenue. That and, could go to funding uh, education. Yeah, and, and we're being told that it's not going to harm public education. You know, it, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a cynic by nature, but um, I also don't believe winks and handshakes anymore uh, to say that this isn't going to harm education because when we're cutting that much of our revenue pie, 
and um, and there's just no way. There's no way to not harm uh, all state services when you when you cut that much revenue. And it seems like post pandemic, well, because we're not post pandemic, so they're still in the no. pandemic. But just over the course, even of the pandemic, has added extra challenges within um, the public education space to where schools could certainly use more resources for uh, meeting needs of teachers, meeting needs of environments and other things. And so I'm sure there's plenty of opportunity of where if lawmakers surveyed school superintendents and educators of, you know, where could they use some some extra resources? There's pl- probably plenty of areas. So plenty of areas, you know, community schools where we have, um, you know, uh, student services there that will help with health, mental health, uh, you know, um, nutrition and, um, and help the parents, you know, either get their GED. I mean, those are the kinds of services that our schools aspire to be um, if we had funding. And uh, we heard again this year, you know, oh, two years ago, we threw all this money at education and, and, look, and look, look where we are. Yeah, we're in the middle of a pandemic. That's where we are, you know. So, um, so, so let's, let's see where giving education money leads us. And, um, and we'll do great things because look what we've done with the underfunded schools that we have now. We're doing amazing things for our kids. That's true. As a, as a parent of some public school kids, I appreciate uh, our school system a great deal. So um, well, thank you, Alicia. This has been very helpful. If you, if you want to stick around, we're going to pivot now to talk to Commissioner Carrie Blumert um, about what has been happening uh, with Oklahoma County, specifically with the jail and the jail trust over the last week. Uh, I'm sure as most of our listeners know, um, as it was last weekend, uh, there was an incident at the jail. Um, I don't. I know the news has referred to it as a hostage situation, and and from little I have seen, that seems to be a good descriptor. But I don't want to use the improper terminology here for what actually happened. Um, Commissioner Bloomert, welcome to the show again. Welcome back. Do you want to give us a little update on um, on or an overview of what happened over the last week and kind of where we're at today? Yes. And I will have to be pretty careful with what I say and how I say it, because um, obviously the situation is very new, very fresh, and um, it's not a good situation. So on Saturday, this past Saturday, March, I think it was 27th, on the 10th floor of our jail, um, there was one detention officer who was in that pod and a pod is a group of cells. And he was doing um, what I'm, if I remember correctly, he was doing med pass. Um, So he was going cell to cell, uh, making sure that detainees had their medication. And one of the detainees, uh, when when the door was opened, he pushed through and grabbed the detention officer and essentially held him hostage, uh, put his hands behind his back, I think used his own, um, the, the handcuffs or whatever he had um, and restrained him with his own um, tools that he has on his belt as a detention officer. And I, I don't, I don't, I cannot remember how long he was held 
But you can see in the video, um, a, a lot of the video is floating around um, that other detainees in the pod started coming out. And the way the situation was um, rectified was that the um, Oklahoma City Police Department TAC team was called, um, which I believe stands for tactical team. Um, and it's essentially the law enforcement team that they send into very sticky situations like a hostage situation. And they, I, I won't comment on, on what exactly happened other than the TAC team did shoot and kill the detainee that was holding the detention officer hostage. And obviously that detainee should not have done that, but I really wish that, I wish that the TAC team would have found a different way to defuse the situation um, obviously no, I don't want anyone in our jail to die, let alone be shot by police. Um, so it's just an all around really bad situation. The detention officer, um, did suffer some injuries. He is, uh, recovering. Um, he is alive and well, thankfully, I assume that was a very traumatic situation for him. And, um, I do feel really, really bad for him. The, the jail historically has been understaffed and that detention officer was in that pod by himself. That is public information. Um, and that happens frequently. Um, so that's an issue. That's a huge issue. And right now, and I'm sure you're going to ask me about Monday and about what happened yesterday. And, um, but right now for me personally, my main goal is how do we keep people, people alive in our jail and how do we lower our liability as much as possible? Sure. Those well, are two goals that's, those are admirable goals. Right. And I, and I will be honest, I, I have tried to stay up on this and read up on it in preparation for today. And because it's important, um, but this week has been so busy and so many things have happened <laughs> with education as we talked with Alicia about and with the county jail um, that the reason I ask you to, to, to give us an overview is not to put you on the spot, but because you have been living and breathing this probably in a way more intimately than, than Bailey and I have. Um, and it, I saw a headline the other day though, speaking of, of staffing ratios at the jail that said since the incident, something like 11 or 13 officers had resigned as well, dropping the number of people who were in, of officers there even lower uh, and, and highlighting the fact that this was not okay in all kinds of ways, right? And that um, sometimes when things that are bad happen, it leads to even worse conditions, right? Which I think further highlights, like it's like another highlighter marker going over the same point again of, of what happened. And so the, as I, I think our listeners probably remember from when the last time you were on, we were talking through the relationship between the board of county commissioners on which you sit uh, with the other two county commissioners and some other people. And well, I guess the board is just the three of you, right? The board is just the three of us. If, if you're referring to the budget board, that's right. That is the three county commissioners and then the five other county elected officials. Right. And then there's this relatively new-ish thing, the jail trust, 
right? Which has just been a couple of years ago, um, I guess time flies, but a couple of years that it's been in place that is responsible for the jail itself. And there's a jail administrator um, that is kind of the executive that oversees the jail that is employed by the jail trust. Um, and so all of these entities have been visiting about the events of last weekend throughout this week. So I, I think most specifically, I, I would like to talk about yesterday's jail trust meeting because that was, and, and I know that you are not on the jail trust, but I also know you pay attention to that as the county commissioner. So can you give us a little overview of where we're at with that after yesterday's meeting? So the jail trust had what's called an emergency meeting yesterday. Um, an emergency meeting can be called by the chair if, um, and I cannot remember the situations that deem an emergency meeting, but it's basically there's an emergency and you all need to meet and it precludes you from the 48 hour notice of a typical meeting. So they met yesterday, they were in executive session for almost two hours, maybe an hour and a half, um, which I expected them to be in there that long. There was an item on their agenda to discuss the employment of their administrator. When they came out of executive session, they, and this is this is typical of public bodies when they come out of executive session, their motion doesn't really make sense to, their motion is very cryptic. Um, and legally, counsel can tell you, yeah, you all don't, legally you do not have to make a motion that says what we just discussed in there. Um, so their motion was something to the effect of, we're going to proceed with what we talked about in that room. Um, so I, I know as much as you all know about that meeting, because again, I don't sit on the jail trust. Um, my trustee is Francia Kareku. She and I talk all the time and I actually, um, haven't talked to her since yesterday, right before the meeting. Um, and of course, she never tells me what they discuss in executive session. So I'm happy that they met. I, I think the public wanted to see that body come together and realize we really messed up. Um, and not only did we really mess up, we've messed up multiple times in the last couple of months. And, and Commissioner, that's where I would love to to have conversation for our, for our listeners is, uh, this situation has raised again for the public conversations about conditions of the jail. Uh, one thing that I've read on social media from different people weighing in about what led to what happened um, in our county jail is the conditions and the deplorable conditions that our county jail has been in for a while. And I know that's something that um, is important to you and something that you ran on um, is, is, is improving those conditions. So can you talk about like, um, I guess that piece of the history of like, that may be a piece of what builds up and leads to a significant moment like what happened. Because even I think what you mentioned is so valid about the understaffing of our prison being part of the, the conversation on conditions. So just wanted you to, to talk about that piece of the, the puzzle. 
Most of, I would say 99% of the constituents who contact me who are concerned about the jail or parents of people detained or sisters of people detained, 99% of those complaints are around human needs, showers, uh, access to commissary, um, clean clothes, a bed, fresh water, uh, seeing their attorney, making a phone call. And the reason why those issues continue to be issues is you have to have enough staff in a facility like our jail. For showers to occur, you have to have a staff member come in and let people out of their cells and facilitate shower time. For staff to go downstairs or to go to a video room to video meet with their attorney or to go to video arraignment with a judge, you have to have a staff member lead that detainee to go do that activity. So all of these human needs that occur within a facility like this, you have to have staffing to facilitate the meeting of those needs. And I, I'll be careful with how I say this, but I, I wish that the trust would have put a greater emphasis over the last nine months on staffing up. I know that they have been hiring. I know that they've been doing what they call academies where they're training new staff. I know they've been doing that. But I wish that they would have done that at a more robust rate. Um, and again, I don't serve on the trust. Uh, there's a lot of discussions that I'm not involved in. So here we are now, it's April. They've been running the jail, they, meaning the trust, has been running the operations of the jail since July 1st of last year. And they had a whole year where they were for, they were meeting, there were the nine of them, but they weren't, they hadn't taken over operations of the jail. So we essentially gave them a year to prep and get ready. And yet we're 10 months into their operation and we're still having major issues. So what I've been telling people today and, and, and news requests today is that something has to be done different. Obviously the way we're doing things right now is not working. I don't know the answer today, Friday, April 2nd. I don't know the answer yet. I don't know what the magic, I think if we all knew the magic wand, we would have done it by now. Um, I do know that the way things are going right now is not working. And on Monday at our Board of County Commissioners meeting, um, there is an item on our agenda that does include the language dissolvement of the trust. And that's why my phone has been blowing up today is because people, uh, whether they're on one side or the other of the issue, they're, they're asking what's going on. Um, I don't know what's going to happen Monday. This is the first time that the commissioners have had a discussion like this. Um, I am glad that we're having this meeting and having this discussion because I'm ready to do something different and make a change. I don't know what that is yet. Um, because if people, people can't keep dying in that facility, it just, we got to do something different. Yeah. Well, and I had a meeting earlier today, um, with some folks involved in criminal justice 
both in Oklahoma and across the country who are concerned about the conditions in Oklahoma County Jail. And, you know, some of the folks outside of Oklahoma didn't realize the high percentage of folks that are in there pre-trial, right? Before they've been convicted of anything, they're just sitting there waiting. In many cases, more than two years, right? Yeah, the man who... The man who held the detention officer hostage, who was then shot and killed by police, he had been waiting in that jail for two years. And so that that is a whole nother conversation, probably a whole nother episode about um, our court process and how long it takes to move someone through the court process, especially if they have multiple charges and if their charges are... Um, felony charges, if they, if they're heavier charges, um, rape, arson, murder, all of those things just take a really long time to move through the justice system. Oftentimes attorneys, especially defense attorneys will request, um, I'm blanking on the words. They'll request a continuance, um, for whatever reason to give them more time to work on the case, to build a better case. But then that means that defendants sit in jail for years. Right. And this is something I think that we as humans, right, all Oklahomans have to really wrestle with. Um, We all say that we believe that people are innocent until proven guilty, but we'd like in many cases for them to stay in jail until we decide that. And if you've ever stepped foot inside Oklahoma County Jail, even to get your, your fingerprints done, you immediately understand how deplorable the conditions are in that facility. Um, and, you know, for folks like him that have been there for more than two years, there are people who have been there for longer than the jail trust has been around, right? The, this Things have gotten worse and worse. They weren't great before the jail trust. Uh, and as you said, I think something needs to happen, right? Um, about the, I mean, there's obviously a decision about the jail trust to, to keep it or dissolve it. But then also about the jail, the conditions, and where we're at. It is a. I, I don't envy your position, Commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and I would like to offer a similar question that we offered to Alicia, to you, Commissioner Bloomer, uh, for our listeners who are frustrated and they want to do something. What would you recommend them do? Because I think you also brought up a great point about. Um, how our justice system operates, right? So there are things that need to happen at the county level, but there's also things that need to happen at the legislative level. So what do you recommend for um, our listeners to to do as next steps? So for right now, for the next couple of days and weeks, you can watch all county meetings live streamed on YouTube, and then they're saved as recordings after the fact. Um, So it's just the Oklahoma County YouTube page. Long-term, I would say two things. Um, Most of the people sitting in our jail cannot afford to pay their cash bail. And there are some cash bail cases working their way through various state Supreme Courts. I believe the California State Supreme Court just ruled a week or two ago that cash bail is unconstitutional. Um, but that is probably based on the California constitution. Um, again, uh, Alicia and I are not attorneys. <laughs> um, so I would say cash bail 
needs to go away. We need to find a better way to work, get people through the justice system and not have them sitting in a cell. We need a new building um, that is gonna cost a lot of money. And I have ideas of how that would be paid for, but it's gonna take a lot of different moving parts to, for everyone to come together to agree how to pay for that. Um, I know we say this a lot, but contact your county commissioners, contact the sheriff, contact members of the trust. Um, all of their contact information is on the county website. Um, if I if 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 I hear from enough people who are like, yeah, the trust isn't working, we have a different a way that we want to do this. I might look. I might consider that and look into it. Um, I think I love it when constituents contact me, whether I agree with them or not. Um, and the more people contact me about an issue, the more I see that people are talking about it and engaging with it. Um, if I, I've had people reach out to me in the last couple of weeks who either they themselves have spent time in that jail or they work in a program where their participants have spent time in that jail. And several of them have asked to do listening sessions with me um, where I essentially sit and listen to their experience and listen to their ideas. And I am so happy to do that because it gives me a better understanding of what actually goes on inside that building at three in the morning when no one's when people like me are home asleep. Um, so those are my ways for people to engage contact your commissioners, contact the jail trust. You can watch our meetings live, um, advocate for a new jail. Yeah, that's a whole other thing that we yeah. can get into at a different time. Well, um, man, this, uh, this episode has had its ups and downs. I know we started on a very high note about it being Good Friday and ended on a very sobering note of the reality of the world in which we live. Yeah. Um, and that's the way life goes. Um, Commissioner Bloomert, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Alicia, thank you for joining us as well. It's my pleasure. I'll hit the music now because it's happy and it feels weird to just transition out of that. And uh, Bailey, thank you for being here as well. Always, of course. Listeners, thank you for listening. I will drop some links into the show notes for this episode so that you can stay involved with this. Um, follow along. Uh, and as Commissioner Bloomert said, please reach out to your elected officials at all levels and let them know your thoughts, your fears, your concerns, um, and build that relationship because that's really what makes a difference. On that, have a good weekend. Decisions are made by those who show up. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.